Equipping speakers to make an impact. It's the Key 5 Podcast for speakers by speakers with your hosts, Robert Ferguson and Sarah Jo Crawford. Welcome to the Key 5 Podcast. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah Jo. And Sarah Jo, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics today, and that's about speaking skills, presentation skills. And I have the eight P's of presentation skills that I think we should talk about today. I'm super excited. As you know, Robert, I'm a bit of a rule breaker, so I'm hoping that you can give me some rules. Maybe I won't try to break them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to say, if you know the rules well, you can break them. So... (laughs) That's my plan. The first one is the one that I think many people forget to do. They're so busy building their presentation, and that is to practice. First eight pieces. Oh, yes. And and people need to, whether they're standing in front of the mirror or ideally, be on video. Take a look at yourself. See how scary you look. But actually, people are afraid to see themselves. And yet, why not be the first one to see yourself or maybe a friend before you stand in front of the big public audience? Yes, I have a friend who brought in a comedian to help her work on body language and timing. And the minute my friend walked on stage, the comedian said, stop, 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 stop. You are practicing and speaking wrong. You're walking in apologetically, like just raked her over the coals. But by practicing, especially with, you know, a third party, she was able to improve so much. Absolutely. And, you know, here's the way I like to look at practice. No matter how good or bad you think you look, you can only get better. Experience makes you better. So start from where you are. If you look like you're walking funny, talking funny, not smiling, (laughs) at least you know what to fix. Absolutely. And one of the key elements that I I don't want to miss on this, uh, Sarah Jo, is you need to even practice being spontaneous. (laughs) Ooh, that kind of comes down to like level of memorization. It can be. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, really, comedians are excellent at this. My favorite, Robin Williams, I mean, he always seemed to be on, but he was constantly practicing and exploring of what it took. And if something doesn't resonate well, he would remember that and not do that again. (laughs) You know, that's really awesome. I was actually reading an article about TED Talk preparation and how the sweet spot for practice is like your outlines where you can kind of fill some stuff in, you know, ad lib, but you have a pretty good practice. But every time you do it, it's a little bit different. There's actually for TED Talks, they recommend birthday song preparation, which means you can give your speech while doing something else. Like if someone started singing happy birthday, you could jump in and you wouldn't even have to think about it. And so for those shorter speeches, it is actually interesting to read that there's lots of people who practice saying their speech to where they can say it under their breath while knitting or multitasking. That one personally scares me, but um, there's like varying levels of practice. Well, that reminds me of something I read about the Juilliard School of the Arts, that when you're on stage, they'll actually do things like blow a trumpet, drop something, <laughs> smash it, and see if you can keep going. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah. Well, let me talk about the second P, though, is you want to look good, and that is the P is posture. How are you standing? What is your appearance? And the gestures that you're move, move, uh, using, I, I think it's really key that you look the part that you want to be. Especially if you want to be seen as an expert or an authority on the topic, which who doesn't? So like shoulders back, arms open. Ooh, yeah, just open body language in general. Or if you're, maybe you've got aggressive body language and you don't know that, like reflecting on not just the way you look, because I could go on and on about makeup and hair and all that, but the way you hold yourself. 
Absolutely. The two things that I always remember, one is from my mother, believe it or not. And she <laughs> says, whether you're sitting, you're standing, but especially on stage, imagine that there's this string out of the top of your head pulling you up. And so mm. you're stand tall. She used to always say that to me, stand tall. You know, you're slouching. My mom used to say, you're standing like the letter C. Oh. That was all slouched over. <laughs> and, and the other one, I always try to do myself even, as soon as I get on stage, I say to myself, smile. Hmm. Because I'm so focused often on my topic of what I want to say that my face reflects so serious. You'd think I was about to walk into a <laughs> funeral home and it's, I have to actually force myself. Oh, yes, I like this. I need to smile. This is fun. I enjoy this. Well, on the note of a you know posture and appearance, I was recently at a, at a TEDx where one of the female speakers was wearing dangly earrings. And when she got out there, the sound started messing up. And she, you know, said something to the sound crew like, well, I'm going to give them just a minute to figure this out. Turns out it was her earrings, but she hadn't worn them whenever she was doing sound check. So the way she presented herself was there's a difference between sound check and real life. I wouldn't recommend wearing earrings ever on stage, but especially practicing with them. I agree. Of course, I don't wear earrings. I know some men that do, but <laughs> anything that on your body that can make noise. I will say for men, especially these certain blazers, they have these um, little buttons and they jingle. And so if you're not careful, you have to also think of what are those little things on your clothing that can be annoying sounds. Or if you make big gestures like myself, sometimes you can knock your own mic. So practicing with, so if it's a lapel mic, I'm always running the risk of knocking it and making those big noises. <laughs> well, I know people that where there's a glass of water near the podium and they've knocked it over completely. So, Oh my gosh. <laughs> big gestures can be important. You just have to know what's around you. So I like to pull out some deep lunges on occasion. It really gets the crowd going. <laughs> That's all part of it. Yes. But deliberate <laughs> posture and how you're using yourself. Then the third P is your pace. I, I find that if you practice uh, your speech, and let's say it's a 20-minute mm -hmm. speech, on stage, it's probably 15 because we go so fast, we're so excited, mm -hmm. and we have to learn to intentionally slow down or sometimes even speed up because it's related to the topic. I love breaking this rule in both directions. You've heard, like having an extended silence, like more than normal, that can really grab people's attention. They're like, wait, why can't I hear her anymore? I'm going to pay attention. Or you can speed up. And as long as you've practiced the really, really quick speaking, it can be really effective. If you don't practice that, it can be super mumbly and people don't know what you're saying. Yes. Uh, in fact, it is true that we can hear, I think it's four or five times faster uh, than what you know, than what people realize. And so we can mm -hmm. talk faster, but it needs to be deliberate. It needs to be clear. It needs to be succinct. And if you're a mumbler at all, or a few people I know, they have marbles in their mouth, mm -hmm. then, then learning how to pace themselves can be a really key part to be able to connect with the audience. I've also seen with pace, different accents can cause issues with, so for example, I have a friend that her native tongue is Russian and they actually speak with kind of a closed mouth, their jaws kind of tense. So she's really struggled with pace because if she speeds up, you can't hear her or you can't understand her. So reflecting on how pace with the language you're natively speaking and the audience in front of you can be a big disconnect. Well said. In fact, more of our audiences today are of a diverse background and English may not be their first language. And so learning mm -hmm. the the importance of your pace, um, that, that is key.
The, the next one, Sarah Joe, is something I like. It's called power. I I remember one guy I worked with, I, I said to him, like, you need to, like, I can't hear you. And so imagine <laughs> the beginning of his sentence. He would talk loud and then he would get softer. And he just couldn't seem to keep up the power. I don't know if it was energy or it took all his air out. But if you don't have volume, you sound like a wimp. (laughs) I love that. I actually work with kids quite a bit. It's how I keep myself loose and don't take myself too seriously. But I found if you want kids to be quiet and focus, which adults are just very tall kids, you I found that if I lean forward and whisper just on occasion on the really important parts, they typically lean in too. Absolutely. Like, oh, well, if I'm loud right now, I can't hear her. And whatever she's saying looks really important. So they kind of lean in. Well, I'm in agreement that adults are just big kids. And I like doing (laughs) that with adults because I have found, especially after you've just delivered something with passion, and then you talk quietly. It's like he's saying something important. (laughs) Yes. You're like, I'm going to lean on into this one. It's like it's a secret. They feel like they're in on a secret. So after power comes pitch. And, you know, some people I know, they talk at a very high level, um, maybe because Mm -hmm. they're excited. I think using variety matters. But I know one guy who he he talks like this in a constant tone. And after Mm. a while, you just fall asleep. The monotone (laughs) is destroying. He would do really well with guided meditation, probably. You know, my wife said I can put anybody to sleep. So I've had to learn to vary my pitch in order to keep people awake. On the note of pitch, I have a friend of mine who, let's see, he's a second-generation immigrant, and so he's got the parents who speak, I'm not exactly sure which language it is, but he's got the typical like Asian accent, but he also grew up in Australia, so he's got the Australian accent. And typically in his family, everyone kind of speaks at a higher scale or a higher pitch. So he actually worked with a voice coach who helped him lower his pitch because studies show that a lower pitch commands more attention. So he actually lowered his voice a whole octave. And it was super cool. And he explained to me, like, females do the same thing. We think in order to be welcoming or to express ourselves as a feminine force, we have to raise our voice like when we get on the phone and we're like, hi, I'm Sarah Jo. But that actually (laughs) can kind of grate on people's ears. And that's not typically how we speak, right? Like as I'm talking right now versus when someone calls me, I'm like, hi, it's Sarah Jo. (laughs) Well, actually, I appreciate you saying that male and female. I've heard uh, especially podcasts and I'm listening to them thinking, oh, this is going to kill me. If they could just change (laughs) the tonality, if they could just hear Mm -hmm. themselves. And I think that's key is learning what is a natural, comfortable uh, and you want to be natural. Mm-hmm. And often we're, we change the pitch because we unknowingly are tense and uptight and we want to deliver mm. and do well. But we have to yeah, learn if to manage it. If you're not breathing from your diaphragm or your jaw is tight, all of those things will change the pitch. I actually, my mother ha- made me take choir all through high school. And while I hated it the first year, I actually learned to really appreciate it, but it taught me how to work with my soft palate and how to breathe properly. And I've learned pitch. I didn't know that's what I was learning. (laughs) But learning to sing is actually something that's taught me pitch. Actually, I have a few people have told me that singing really helped them with their presentation. And I can imagine that works because you learn the range that you can use. Yeah. And just so you know, I'm not a great soloist, but I'm a great choral voice. Like I blend in with the best of them. I'm right there with you. (laughs) 
So probably the most effective tool, if I could give anybody just one tool, is the 6P, which is pausing. Oh, pausing. And, and you know, we have this idea that we've got so much to share. I only have so much time. But giving people time to reflect, to actually absorb what you've just said and to think about it is a great gift to your audience. Especially when you're deep in either some technical stuff and both when you're in like a high impact story, when you get to the end, like when, you know, there's a the big point, give them just a second. Or if you just threw a bunch of really like juicy stuff, give them a second, especially to write it down, but to, to kind of ingest it and prepare themselves for what you have to say next. Absolutely. And one of the things I've even done in workshops, I've pulled up videos with speakers where they I I showed how they use pauses intentionally. And I've counted with my finger saying it's one, two, three, four, five. They gave a five second pause be, between thoughts. And I said, did that seem uncomfortable or odd to you as a listener? And they went, no. But as a speaker, five seconds sounds like a minute or two. It sounds so long. Oh, my goodness. I'm actually currently, like before we got on this podcast, editing something, I a uh, presentation I did, and I was hoping to make some cuts. But I have the worst problem of rolling from one sentence to the other to where I can't edit because there's no break. And um, so this is something I'm definitely working on is adding more pauses, not just for the edit. Well, that would be handy, but it's clear I'm not creating emphasis with my pauses. Well, one of the keys as a speaker, if you're on a stage, if you're not confined to a podium, to enable you with pauses is to also marry this with your um, your pace, and that is being able to where you're going to stand. So you may mm. present to the left side, and then what you're going to do is the next thought, say nothing, as you move a couple of feet over to the other side, and then you start speaking again. So you, by marrying how you're walking with what you're saying, you can actually deliberately create pauses in your presentation. Oh, that could be such a unique tool. You know, as your story moves forward, maybe you loop move to the left. Like um, now my brain's running. Let's get, let's get to number seven before I get too excited. <laughs> okay. Well, it's very important that how you're connecting with the audience is with your eyes. And so my seventh P is your peepers, <laughs> mm. <laughs> eye contact. And yet I don't know how many I've seen. It's like they're looking over our heads. They don't look into our eyes. I don't really feel they're connecting. And it's, mm -hmm. I don't know what it takes in order to be, well, here's two thoughts that I do want to share. Every audience is made up of two kinds of people, mirrors and sponges. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I look for those who are my mirrors. They're the head nodding. They're the smiling. They seem engaged. They may be thinking of something completely different, but at least I feel great as a presenter. <laughs> I feel like a bobblehead whenever I'm the mirror. I've got a speaker. I'm just sitting there, like trying to give him a, give him all the energy right back. <laughs> well, but remember that the audience also has what I call sponges. They may have a sour looking face. They may have their arms crossed. They may be even looking like they're scowling. And you mm -hmm. think, oh my gosh, they hate what I'm saying. And yet I find after a presentation, they're often the individuals who come up and go, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, so you're, you are serving and speaking to those who are absorbing, but you look for those who maybe give you, it feels great, the eye, uh, mm -hmm. feedback. But that's why your eye contact is so great, I, important. Look to your left. You maybe connect with somebody with a thought. Then you're going to look to the right. You're going to connect with somebody with another thought. But every time you're connecting eye to eye, everyone feels like you're connecting with them. 
I love that. And I do sometimes feel like I'm picking on one person with all my eye contact. So I have to like, remember like, Hey, maybe look at one other person. <laughs> Cause I, I love looking at, looking at them so much, but anytime that you break that moment of eye contact with the audience in front of you, I mean, their eyes drop. I've seen it happen. If they look down, if the speaker looks down at a card or looks over at the clock, that's a big one. Oh, big one. Their whole audience, their eyes just drop. Yeah. And I'm actually happy more people don't wear watches these days, though it seems to be coming back because the minute you turn to your wrist and look at your watch, it's like, oh, how much longer do I have to do this? I want to check mm-hmm. out. So it's important not to look at anything other than the audience. I actually like to set up little like reminders in my phone. So they're not alarms, which would go off constantly, but I've got an Apple watch. So I can set them up to nudge me first five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So they have no idea that's what's happening, but I'll feel a little nudge and I'm like, oh, nudge number one. Or I maybe I just set up the nudge for five minutes left to make sure I really nail the the closer. But that is a, that's a little bit of a risky move. So I wouldn't recommend that to everybody. One of the key time managements that I've seen professional speakers do is their speech maybe is broken up into key components and they know exactly mm-hmm. how long each component is. And if for some reason, let's say I have a 30 minute presentation and the person before me talked 10 minutes longer than they should have. And now I'm told I only have 20 minutes. I mm-hmm. know that I'm going to take out this section, this section, and this section. And I know exactly how long those are. So knowing your sections or breaking your presentation into sections and practicing so you know exactly the time length, that can really help in managing time. I love that. So our, our last P, our eight Ps, uh, Sarah Jo, is passion. Oh, passion. <laughs> you know, if you're really excited, it needs to show. Unfortunately, sometimes when you get to this, this last P, you can accidentally end up breaking all of the previous rules and not effectively. So practicing the passion uh, is going to be important. Absolutely. But, you know, one of the reasons that I think the passion is often lost in a professional speaker is this may be the 50th time that you're going to tell that part of your speech, which is a story. You know it so well that it, it can come off sounding like I really don't care. And mm-hmm. so being able to do that every part of the presentation as though it's the first time, it has to show. And and that means you're really engaged. So knowing all the eight P's are important, but you really, when it comes to passion, you have to know, man, this is the first time these people probably have ever heard this. I need to deliver it. It's like it's the first time. Exactly. And if you can't tell your story or spread your message every time and get excited about it, then you probably don't like your topic very much. If you if you can't get up there and get stoked to, to change the world with your ideas, then you must not like your ideas. Well said. And, and I think that's that's a key part of it, almost a benchmark of how well you're mm-hmm. doing. I almost sometimes want to give the audience, a, you know, the grade, hey, grade this speaker and grade me on a one to 10. And if I'm anything less than a 10 on passion, then I have a problem. Absolutely. So there's eight P's of uh, public speaking that we can share. Um, a little birdie told me that you've got a bonus one for us. <laughs> well, yes, I will give him a bonus tip today. The ninth one that we should avoid and that ninth Ooh. one is predictability. Oh, no, this is my, everyone avoid, listen up. If you have just, if you settled into your seat, you're about to pause this, listen up. 
I, unfortunately, I think politicians and pastors can fall into this. And, mm-hmm. and it's just that sense of a rhythm. I, I almost call it the speaker voice. I find politicians especially. And it doesn't matter what where they're from or what party they're from. They're, it's like they all studied from the same song sheet. Because mm-hmm. I'm listening to them. They go up and then they go down and they pause at the same spot. And after a while, I don't hear the message anymore. I can almost predict mm-hmm. the flow and how they're going to talk. Well, and they almost have so many pauses, I get lost. And that's where they kind of get this reputation of not really answering the question because you're like trying to follow where they're going and you've, you, you've forgotten, but then are they still going? Are we done? It's very confusing. One of the reasons that I think comedians are so successful, the ones that are on TV that we I watch or on stage, they are constantly breaking any sense of predictability. In fact, you're listening yes. because they're going to you don't know what they're going to do next. And that's a gift. If every presenter, every speaker, every professional speaker can learn how to surprise the audience, do things differently, that can be a huge gift that they are just delighted that you're not like uh, all the other politicians, pastors and others <laughs> who, you know, just are boring. Yeah, I actually have my favorite comedian, John Mulaney. Um, he's brilliant. He actually, so he kind of breaks this rule just a little bit. So he actually times all of his joke to jokes to a particular pace. And I find that that kind of provides a level of comfort. So at first you're kind of caught off guard. You're like, that was a really interesting pace. But as you continue to listen to him, the jokes always change, but you kind of can always tell a joke's coming and you get really excited based off this, this comfortable, relatable pace that he set. It's definitely different, but it's kind of like a little bit of predictability that kind of um, mixes it up while still being fun. Fabulous. I'd love to hear him sometime. Our guest today is Alan Hoffler, the Executive Director and Principal Trainer at Millswick Communications and the author of the book Presentation Sin, The Practical Guide to Stop Offending and Start Impressing Your Audience. Welcome, Alan. Great to be with you. Thanks for all you do to make speakers wonderful on stage. <laughs> well, we try to add value and I'm excited to have you here. And I have to tell you, I've shared your book, Presentation Sin, to more people than than I can count. And I, t- I reference it. I've actually, it's, it's dog-eared and I reference so much of it. And, and a key part of today, as Sarah, Joe, and I have been talking about, is the presentation skills, the actual aspect. Once you have your content, you're on stage, some key things you do right or, or don't do right. Um, Alan, what would you say, or just we'll start off with, what are some of the most common offenders or sins you see in speakers that they make today? Well, I think the the individual techniques that we would point out are really part of a, a larger issue, and that is complacency. I, I think most people, especially those that are on stage and even getting paid to be on stage, think, well, I must be great then. People are listening to me. And they probably are very good. Most There's very, very few people who are just terrible. But I love the attitude that I can get better. What do I got to do to be absolutely wonderful on stage? And just the, the attitude that I'm good enough, I think, really is, is probably the biggest sin of all, is, is just mm-hmm. accepting the way you are, because everybody, everybody can get better. I agree. And you, know, you and I have actually talked before that uh, some of the people who we would assume want to get better because they're in front of people all the time, and that include pastors and teachers and politicians. And yet it doesn't seem as though they want to look at themselves or study themselves. You've discovered that too. Absolutely. I had a friend, an former client I've recently met after a couple of years who said that they had 
been to this national conference with a name that most of us would recognize as the, the guest speaker. The guy had a name, he had pedigree, he had his stories, and they said he was absolutely terrible on stage, that he apparently just relied on his past successes and, and, and got to the stage, but they looked around the room and said there were 1,500 people on their phones because this guy had nothing to say. He didn't say it interesting. He didn't sound interesting. And this is a guy's on TV. I mean, he's, he's a person you see on a regular basis. And apparently when he's got his script in front of him, he's got his producer in his ear, he's okay. But when he got on stage, he just fell flat. Some of the specific things we see, the voice is what carries the message. And, and so many folks just sort of fall into a normal, whatever's comfortable for them voice, and really working hard to make that voice interesting to listen to, to be different at different times, all words are not created equal, is a real challenge for, I think, everyone. So let me ask you this, Alan, if someone has a voice, I think about radio, or in podcasts, um, people tell me I have a face for radio, so maybe I have a good voice, but I listen to some voices and they, they just annoy me. So if you happen not to have the best voice on the planet, what are some things you can do to try and at least sound a little more pleasing to your audience? I think the biggest thing is to vary it. Any voice is annoying if it doesn't change after a while. And, and by the way, I don't know who, who you speak, and let's keep them anonymous. I try not to ever name names on such a, a forum. But my guess is if they had something extremely awesome to say, you would absolutely overlook their voice. Mm-hmm. But if they're mundane, they're just pedestrian in their content, then suddenly their voice becomes grating and annoying. But all we got to do is change it. we got to find a way to make our inflection change, our volume, our pace, something that makes it worth interesting to in, even in the grading voice, you know, I wish I had the, the, the deep James Earl Jones voice. That would be just an unfair advantage. Or give me an English accent. That would be that would be something that would be interesting to listen to. You do have the advantage of having the Canadian tone to your voice. So that, that's an unfair advantage for you. <laughs> well, we work with what we've got, right? That's exactly right. My voice isn't going to change in, in terms of the, the total quality of it. I'm the one that can change the inflection. But this this nasally southern drawl that I've got is not going anywhere. <laughs> well, Alan, one of the things we talked about on our eight P's of public speaking on this podcast is posture. And, and I remember you and I were chatting about in the uh, 2016 presidential election, and there was this vast array of people on the Republican stage, and you were looking at how they were all standing. Can you share what your observations were of that? Just you could tell who had good posture and who didn't. Yes, it was absolutely telling. Of course, one of these candidates was going to end up vying for the presidency, which is a fairly important role. You'd like to think they would look presidential when they stood. And it was it was the very onset. I think there were 17 people, as I recall, that were that were still in the race at that time. The next week, about half of them dropped out. But at that time, there were 17, and 16 of the 17 were standing exactly as we coach folks to stand. The other one was standing like a, an uncomfortable athlete at the end of a football practice or something. They just looked completely drained, completely uh, unorthodox, and it stood out. You, you looked at this array, men and women at the time, you looked at this array, they all looked the same except one. And sure enough, it was one of the ones that dropped out the next week. Minor thing, one of the things we teach in our workshops is that you can't win posture. Nobody's ever walked away from a speech and said, man, that guy stood on stage with incredible posture. But the posture is a tell, and people infer a lot of negatives from posture. He looked distant. He looked uninterested. He looked bored. He looked cold. There's a lot of negatives 
the posture, but very, very few positives. So we just try to remove those negatives, uh, stand in that neutral posture with our feet together, arms at our side, smile on our face, shoulders square, balance on our feet. That's that's presidential posture. <laughs> okay, so let's say you get your posture right. But what about your face and your what your face looks like? One of the most common comments we get from people that watch videos of themselves, and that's something we force all of our clients to do. I had uh, three folks I was coaching over the phone yesterday on a, a webinar, and we recorded it, and I told them at the end of the assignment, hey, you got to go back and watch the three minutes that you did for me. And all three of them just got this horrid look on their face. Of, oh, no. But one of the most common comments we get is, boy, I sure thought I smiled more, and I don't look very happy when I talk. We we project our feelings to ourselves, and, and you know we're pleasant. I'm happy right now. I'm feeling feeling good this morning. But you don't know that. And if I can't push that expression on my face, and most of the times when we're talking, there is some level of emotion and passion to what we're discussing. But it's amazing how little we show that passion. Mm-hmm. I think of the professors that we had in college. These people devoted their life to this singular topic. It's something they absolutely love. And most of them lecture like it's just the biggest pain in the world. We don't see any passion in what they're talking about. So we got to remind ourselves, hey, smile, show some excitement. It's almost like they all need to go to acting school. Which is what most people feed back to us is, man, it feels like I'm putting one up here and it's just not me. I don't feel authentic. But your audience doesn't know that mm-hmm. unless they're an intimate friend of yours. They have no idea what your real heart is. All they know is what they see and hear. That's what we've got to make spectacular. Not our feelings and our good intentions, but what our audience sees and hears. So, Alan, if if we get all the what we call the eight P's of public speaking, you have them very well defined in your own way in that in your book, Presentation Sin. There's this ninth one we talked about, which is uh, predictability. How do we avoid as speakers sounding the same as everyone else? And I personally think politicians, they all put me to sleep because it's like they all studied at the same school, talk the same way, and I don't even hear their content anymore. How, what do you recommend to speakers so they don't sound the same as everyone else? It's absolutely critical that, that we stand out. We, we, we need to sound different. When we, I'm coaching a group right now that's doing this huge proposal for a, a grant. And there's five people pitching. There on day one, there's going to be five days in a row where this audience has to listen to a four-hour pitch. I said, listen, that's 20 hours of people sitting in a room listening to other people tell them. And every single group is going to say, we're qualified, we have great ideas, we're well-funded, we're well-organized. Every one of them is going to say all the things they have to say. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to be different? And they just sort of looked at me like, well, what do you mean? We're going, to, we're going to tell them how great we are. Yeah, and so is everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> They're day one. How are they a week later when the decision is going to be made? How are we even going to remember what somebody said seven days ago? Mm-hmm. So we, we've got to stand out somehow. I, I think the, the biggest fault or, or, or trap is the first words out of our mouths. If we say, well, hey, it's so good to be here. Thank you, Chancellor, for those kind remarks. You know, it's it's so great to be in Denver today. It's such a beautiful city and the humidity and blah, 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 blah. It's typical. It's what everybody does. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't stand out. So make those first words matter from the get-go. I think the other thing that can make us unpredictable is to talk about the, the one thing that's unique to us. And it's really the vulnerability of our story. Mm. I was across a quote last year that said, the quickest way to connect with an audience is to show vulnerability, to show weakness. And I don't think we should get up there and tell everybody how bad we are, but 
but showing some sort of story. Everybody's got a unique story. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to break the pattern of, un- of predictability. You know, everybody's going to quote, if you're talking leadership, hey, we're going to pull out John Maxwell, give a quote or some find something from Churchill and everybody's doing that. So what's your story? What, what is it that makes you different? If you can't come up with something, then why should I listen? Mm. And then as you tell that story to be authentic, I mean, some people walk on the stay a lot and some people stay still, I guess all of those elements can feed into who you are as opposed to trying to be like somebody else. Absolutely. And there's a style there. You know, some people are not going to move about stage. It's just not their nature. That's fine. It's okay. There's other things you can do to be interesting as we talked about your voice and your face, but, but yes, there needs to be some level of this is who I am. But also I would challenge anybody that, that feeds that back to me to say, well, but who does your audience need you to be? I, I, I run into a lot of people that want to inspire youth, and goodness knows youth need it. Uh, that's a, a wonderful, noble thing to do, but, uh, well, I'm just not a rah-rah guy. Okay, but if you're going to go talk to youth, what do they expect to see? I mean, these people are plugged into Fortnite for nine hours a day and have 17 streams of information coming at them constantly, and if you get up there and drone on behind a lectern, my guess is you're not going to inspire anybody. <laughs> that's true. Well said. That's brilliant guidance for all professional speakers. Join us on our next Key 5 podcast where we'll be talking about technology for speakers. To listen to all of our podcasts and learn more about our guests, go to key5podcast.com. That's K-E-Y and the number 5, podcast.com. So go to key5podcast.com today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by your local studio. For more, go to keyfipodcast.com. Hey, if you're still listening, thanks for sticking around. I have one quick request. If you like the show, it would mean a whole lot if you left a review over in the iTunes store. This actually helps others find the show. So thanks in advance, and I'll talk to you next time.